Thank you for viewing this Life to Tape video. Life to Tape is part of Fotations, and if you'd like to help, you can visit FotationsDonation.com, where there are ways you can support financially or by donating equipment. If you'd also like to support on social media, that helps out a lot. There's more information on our social media accounts in the links below. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hello, this is the Fotations Life to Tape podcast. We are reading... The South Sea Tales by Jack London The House of Manapu Despite the heavy clumsiness of her lines, the aurora handled easily in the light breeze, and her captain ran her well. And before he hove just outside the, su the suck of the turf, the a troll of haiku lay low on the water, a circle of pounded coral sand a hundred yards wide. Twenty miles in circumference, and from there three to five feet above high water mark, on the bottom of the huge and glassy lagoon was much pearl shells, and from the deck of the schooner across the slender ring of the atoll, the diver could be seen at work. But the lagoon had no entrance for even a trading schooner. With a favored breeze, cutters could win through the tortuous and shallow channel, but the schooner lay off on outside and sent in their small boats. The oar swung out a boat smartly into which sprang half a dozen brown-skinned sailors clad only in scarlet loincloths. They took the oars while the stern sheet at the steering sweep stood a young man garbed in the tropic white that marks the European. The gold stain of Polyasia betrayed itself in the sun gilt of his fair skin and cast up golden sheens and light through the glimmering blue of his eyes. Raoul he was, Alexander Raoul, son of Mary Raoul, the wealthy quarter caste who owned and managed half a dozen trading schooners similar to the Aurora. Across an eddy just outside the entrance, and in and through and over the boiling tide rip, the boat fought its way to the mere calm of the lagoon. Young Raoul leaped out upon the white sand and shook hands with the tall native. The man's chest and shoulders were magnificent, but the stump of a right arm beyond the flesh of which was an aged, whitened bone projecting several inches, attested the counter with a shark that had been put the put an end to his diving days, and made him a fawner of the great intruder of small favors. Have you heard, Alec, were his first words? Manapai has found a pearl, such a pearl. Never was there any one like it, even fished up in Haiku, nor in the Panamodius, nor in all the world. Buy it from him. He has it now, and remember that I told you first. He is a fool, and you can get it cheap. Have you any tobacco? Straight up the beach to this shack, under the pandanus tree, Raoul headed. He was his mother's supercargo, and his business was to comb all of Pomodus for wealth of copra, shells, and pearls. They yielded up. He was a young supercargo, and in his second voyage in such capacity, he had suffered much secret worry from his lack of experience in pricing pearls, but when Manapai exposed the pearl to his sight, he managed to suppress the startle it gave him, and to maintain a careless, comical expression on his face, for the pearl had struck him a blow, and it was large as a pigeon's egg, perfect sphere of whiteness, and reflected opalescent lights from all colors about it. It was alive. Never had he seen anything like it. When Manapu dropped it into his hands, he was surprised by the weight of it that showed it was of a good pearl. He examined it closely through the pocket magnifying glass. It was without raw or flaw or blemish. The purity of it seemed almost to melt into the atmosphere out of his hand, and in the shade it was softly luminous, gleaming like a tender moon. So translucently white was it, that when he dropped it into the glass of water, he had difficulty in finding it. So straight and swiftly had it sunk to the bottom, that he knew its weight was excellent. Well, what do you want for it? he asked, with a fine assumption of nonchalance. I want Manapu began, began, and behind him, 
Framing his own dark face, the dark faces of two women and a girl nodded concurrently in what he wanted. The heads were bent forward, and they were animated by a suppression, a suppressed eagerness. Their eyes flashed adventitiously. I want a house, Manabu went on. It must have a roof of galvanized iron and octagon-dropped clock. It must be six fathoms long, with a porch all around. The big room must be in the center, with a round table in the middle of it, and the octagon drop clock on the wall. There must be four bedrooms, two on each side of the big room, and each bedroom must be of iron bed, two chairs, and a washstand. And the back of the house must be, must be a kitchen, a good kitchen, with pots and pans and a stove. And you must build the house on my island, which is Fakarana. Is that all? Raul asked incredulously. There must be a sewing machine, spoke up Tarafa, Manapu's wife. Not forgetting the octagon drop clock, added Nari, Nari, Manapu's mother. Yes, that is all, said Manapu. Young Raul laughed. He laughed long and heartily. But while he laughed, he secretly performed problems in mental arithmetic. He had never built a house in his life, and his notions concerning house building were hazy. While he laughed, he calculated the cost of the voyage to Tahiti for materials for, of the materials themselves, the voyage back again to Farakana, and the cost of landing the materials and the building the house. It would come to 4,000 French dollars, allowing a margin of safety of 4,000 French dollars were equivalent to 20,000 francs. It was impossible. How he was how was he to know the value of such a pearl? 20,000 francs was a lot of money and of his mother's money at that. Manapai, he cried, you are a big fool. Set a money price. But Manapu shook his head and the three heads behind him shook with his. I want the house, he said. It must be six fathoms long with a porch all around. Yes, yes, Rohu interrupted. I know all about your house, but it won't do. I give you a thousand chili dollars. The four heads concurred in silent negative, and a hundred chilling dollars in trade. I want the house, Manapu began. What good will the house do you? Raoul demanded. The first hurricane comes along, we'll wash it away. You ought to know. Captain Rafuse said, it looks like a hurricane right now. Not on Fakarana, said Manapai. The land is much higher there. On this island, yes, any hurricane can sweep Haruku. I will have the house of Fakarana. It must be six fathoms long with a porch all around. Raoul listened again to the tale of the house. Several hours he spent in the endeavor to hammer the house obsession out of Manapu's mind. But Manapu's mother and wife, and Nagrana, Manapu's daughter, bolstered him in his resolve for the house. Though the open doorway, while he listened for the twelfth time to the detailed description of the house that was wanted, Rose saw his schooner's second boat draw up on the beach. The sailor rested on the oars, advertising haste to be gone. The first mate of the Aurora sprang ashore, exchanged a word with the one-armed native, and hurried toward Raoul. The day grew suddenly dark, and as squales obscured obscured the face of the sun across the lagoon, Raoul could see approaching the ominous line of the puff of wind. Captain Raffi says you've got to get the hell out of here, was the mate's greeting. If there's any shell, we've got to run the risk of picking it up on later, or so he says. The barometers dropped to twenty-nine seventy. In the gust of wind struck the pandemonious tree overhead and tore through the palms beyond flinging half a dozen ripe coconuts with their heavy thuds to the ground. Then came the rain out of the distance, advancing with the roar of gale of wind and causing the water of the lagoon to smoke in driven windrows. The sharp rattle of the first drops were on the leaves when Ragul sprang to his feet. A thousand Chilean daughters cashed down, Munapai said, and two hundred Chilean dollars in trade. I want a house, the other began. Manapai, Raoul yelled, in order to make himself heard, you are a fool. 
he flung out of the house and side by side with the mate fought his way down the beach toward the boat they could not see the boat the tropic rain sheared about them so that they could only see the beach under their feet and spitful little waves from the lagoon that snapped and bit at the sand a figure appeared through the deluge and it was Haru, Haru, the man with one arm did you get the pearl he yelled at raul's ear manapu is a fool was the answered yell and the next moment they were lost to each other in the descending water half an hour later haru watching from the seaward side of atoll saw two boats hoisted in the aurora pointing her nose out to sea and near her just some in the sea of the wings of the squall he saw another schooner hove and drop a boat into water he knew her this was the arena owned by toriki the half-caste trader who served as his own supercargo who doubtlessly was even then in the stern sheets of the boat haru haru chuckled he knew that manipo owed toraki for trade goods advanced to the year before the squall had passed the hot sun was blazing down and the lagoon was once more a mirror but the air was sticky like mullage and the weight of it seemed to burden the lungs and make difficult made breathing difficult have you heard the news torakai haru haru asked manapu has found a pearl never was there a pearl like it ever finished up in haruku nor anywhere in the pentamodus nor anywhere in all the world manapu is a fool besides he owes you money remember that i told you first have you any tobacco and the glass sack of manapai went to toraki he was a masterful man with all fairies with all a fairly stupid one careless he glanced at the wonderful pearl glanced for a moment only and carelessly he dropped it into his pocket you are lucky he said it's a nice pearl i will give you credit on the books i want a house manapai said manapai began in consternation it must be six fathoms six fathoms your grandmother was the trader's retort you want to pay your debts that is what you want you owe me twelve hundred chilean dollars very well you owe them no longer the amount is squared besides i will give you two credits for two hundred chilies if you if when i get to Tariti, the pearl sells well i will give you credit for a hundred for another hundred that will make three hundred but mind only if the pearl sells well i may even lose money on it manapai folded his arms in sorrow and sat with bowed head he had been robbed of his pearl in place of the house he had paid a debt there was nothing to show for the pearl you are a fool said tarafa you are a fool said narini his mother why did you let the pearl into his hand what was i to do manapai protested i owed him the money he knew i had the pearl you heard him ask yourself to see it i had not told him he knew somebody else told him and i owed him the money manapai is a fool mimicked nagriga she was twelve years old and did not know any better manapai relieved his feelings by sending her reeling from the box on the ear while tarifa and narini burst into tears and continued to upbraid him after the manner of women yuri yuri watching on the beach saw a third schooner that he knew heaved outside the entrance and drop a boat it was the harina well named for she was owned by levy the german jew the greatest pearl buyer of all of them and as was well known her was a tiny god of fishermen and thieves have you heard the news haru haru asked and levy a fat man with massive asymmetrical features stepped out upon the beach manapai has found a pearl there was never a pearl like it in there was never a pearl like it in haikaru and all the pandemodias and all the world manapai is a fool he has sold it to toriki for four hundred chileans i listened outside and heard toriki is likewise a fool you can buy it from him cheap remember that i told you first have you any tobacco where is toriki in the house of captain lynch drinking absence he has been there an hour and when levy and toriki drank absence 
and capered on over the pool. Haru Haru listened and heard the stupendous price of twenty-five thousand francs agreed upon. It was at this time that both the Arona and the Ara, running in close to the shore, began firing guns and significantly, frantically, the three men stepped outside in time to see two schooners go hastily about and head off shore, dropping mainsails and flying ships on the run in the teeth of the squall that heeled them far over the whitened water. Then the rain blotted them out. They'll be back after it's over, said Toriki. We'd better be getting out of here. I reckon the glass has fallen some more, said the said Captain Lynch. When he was white-bearded sea captain, too old for service, who had learned that the only way to live on comfortably terms with his asthma was on Hairuku. He went inside to look at the barometer. Great God, they heard him exclaim, and rushed in to join him at staring at the dial, which marked twenty-nine twenty. Again they came out, and this time anxiously to consult the sea and sky. The squail had cleared away, but the sky remained overcast. The two schooners under all sail, and joined by a third, could be seen making back. A veer in the wind induced them to slack off sheets, and five minutes afterward a sudden veer from the opposite quarter caught all three schooners back, and those on shore could see the bloom tackles being slacked away and cast off on the jump. The sound of the surf was loud, hollow and menacing, and heavy swells were setting in. A terrible sheet of lightning burst above their eyes, illuminating the dark day, and the thunder rolled wildly about them. Torikai and Levy broke into a run for their boats, the latter ambling along like a panic-stricken hippopotamus as their two boats swept out the entrance, they passed the boat of the Aurora coming in. In the stern sheets, encouraging the rowers, Rahu, unable to shake the vision of the pearl from his mind, was returning to accept Manabu's price of the house. He landed on the beach in the midst of the driving thunder squall that was so dense that he collided with Haru Haru before he saw him. Too late, yelled Haru Haru. Manapai sold it to Torakai for fourteen hundred chiles, and Torakai sold it to Levi for twenty-five thousand francs, and Levi will sell it in France for a hundred thousand francs. Have you any tobacco? Raoul felt relieved. His trouble about the pearl were over. He need not worry any more, even if he had not gotten the pearl, but he did not believe Haru Haru. Manapai might well have sold it for fourteen hundred chiles, but that Levi who knew pearls would have paid twenty-five thousand francs was too wide a stretch. Raoul decided to interview Captain Lynch on the subject, but when he arrived at the ancient mariner's house, he found him looking wide-eyed at the barometer. What do you read? Captain Lynch asked anxiously, rubbing his spectacle and staring again at the instrument. Twenty-nine ten, said Raoul. I've never seen it so low before. I should say not, snorted the captain. Fifty years, boy, on man, on all the seas, I have never seen it go down to that. Listen. They stood for a moment, and while the surf rumbled and shook the house, then they went outside, and the squail had passed. They could see Aurora lying becalmed a mile away, and pitching and tossing maddenly in the tremendous, tremendous sea that rolled in a stately possession down out of the northwest, northeast, and flung themselves furiously upon the coral shore. One of the sailors from the boat pointed out at the mouth of the passage and shook his head. Raoul looked and saw a wide anarchy of foam and surge. I guess I will stay with you tonight, Captain, he said, then turned to the sailor and told him to haul the boat out and to find shelter for himself and fellows. Twenty-nine flat, Captain Lynch reported, coming out from another look at the barometer, a chair in his hand. He sat down and stared at the spectacle of the sea. The sun came out, increasing the sultriness of the day, while the dead calm still held. The sea continued to increase in magnitude. What makes the sea what it is gets me, Raoul muttered pertinently. There is no wind, yet look at it, that fellow there, miles in length, carrying tens of thousands of tons in weight. 
Its impact shook the frail hotel like the earthquake. Captain Lynch startled. Gracious, he bellowed, half rising from his chair, then sinking back. But there is no wind, Raoul persisted. I could understand it if there was wind going along with it. You'll get the wind soon enough, without worrying for it, was his grim reply. The two men sat on silence. The sword stood out on their skin, in a myriad of tiny drops that ran together, forming blotting blotches of moisture, which in turn coalesced into rivets that dripped to the ground. They panted for breath, the old man's effort being especially painful. The sea swept up the beach, looking around the trunks of the coconuts, and subsided almost at their feet. Why, this past high-water mark, Captain Lynch remarked, I've seen here eleven years. He looked at his watch. It's three o'clock. A man and a woman at their heels, motley following the brats and curs, trailed disconsolately by. They came to a halt beyond the house, and after much irresolution, sat down in the sand. A few minutes later, another family trailed in from the opposite direction, and the men and women carrying a heteroneously assortment of possessions, and soon several hundred persons, all ages and sexes, were conjugated about the captain's dwelling, he called to one new arrival, a woman with a nursing babe in her arms, and an answer received the information that her house had just been swept into the lagoon. This was the highest spot of land in miles, and already in many places on either hand, the great sea was making a clean breach of the slender ring of the atoll and surging into the lagoon. Twenty miles around stretched the ring of the atoll, and in no place was it more than fifty fathoms wide. In was the height of the diving season, and all of the island around, even as far as Tahini, the natives had gathered. There are twelve hundred men, women and children here, said Captain Lynch. I wonder how many will be here tomorrow morning. But why don't it blow? That's what I want to know, Raoul demanded. Don't worry, young man, don't worry. You'll get your troubles fast. Even as Captain Lynch spoke, a great watery mass smote the atoll. The sea water churned about them, and three inches deep under the chairs, a low wail of fear went up in the many women and children, with clasped hands darting at the immense trolls, and tried piteously. Chickens and cats waited perturbably in the water, and by common consent with the flight of the scrambled, took refuge on the roof of the captain's house. Panamotin, with a litter of newborn puppies in a basket, climbed into a coconut tree, and twenty feet above the ground made their back made their basket fast, their mother thundering about them in the water beneath, whining and yelping. And still the sun shone brightly, and the dead calm continued, and sat watching the sea and the insane pitching of the aurora. The captain lynched gazed. Captain Lynch gazed at the huge mountain of water sweeping in until he could gaze no more. He covered his face with his hands to shut out the sight. Then he went into the house. Twenty-eight sixty, he said quietly. Then he turned in his arms was a coil of small rope. He cut it into two fathoms lengths, giving one to Raoul, retaining one for himself, and distributed the remaining among the, remaining among the women. He advised to pick out a tree and climb. The light began to blow out of the northeast and fan it on the cheeks. Fan on his cheeks seemed to cheer Rahul up. He could see the Atona trimming her sheets and heading offshore, and he regretted that he was not on her. She would get away at any rate, but as for the atoll, a sea breached across, almost sweeping him off his feet and he selected a tree. Then he remembered the barometer and ran back to the house, encountered Captain Lynch on the same errand, and together they went in. Twenty-eight twenty, he said the old mariner. It's going to be fair hell around here. What was that? The air seemed to be filled with a rush of something. The house quivered and vibrated, and they heard the thundering of a mighty note of sound. The windows rattled, two panes crashed, and draught of wind tore in, striking them and making 
them stagger, the door opposite banged shut, shattering the latch, the white doorknob crumpled in fragments to the floor, the room's wall bulged like a gas balloon in the possession of sudden inflammation. The, then came a new sound, like in a rattle of musketry, and a spray from the sea struck the wall of the house. Captain Lynch looked at his watch. It was four o'clock. He put on a coat of pilot's cloth, unhooked the barometer, and stowed it away. In a capacious, in a capacious po pocket, again a sea struck the house with a heavy thud, and the light building tilted, twisted a quarter around on its foundation, and sank down its floor at an angle of ten degrees. Raoul went out first. The wind caught him and whirled him away. He noted that it had hauled around to the east, and with great effort he threw himself on the sand, crouching and holding his own. Captain Lynch, driven like a wisp of straw, sprawled over him. Two of the aerial sailors, leaving a coconut tree to which they had been clinging, came to their aid leaning against the wind at an impossible angle and fighting and clawing every inch of the way. The old man's joints were stiff, and he could not climb, so the sailors, by means of short ends, rope tied together, hoisted him up the trunk a few feet at a time until they could make him fast at the top of the tree fifty feet from the ground. Raoul passed the length of rope around the base of the adjacent tree and stood looking on. The wind was frightful. He never dreamed it could blow so hard. A sea breached across the atoll, wetting him to the knees. Ere it subsided into the lagoon, the sun had disappeared, and a lead-colored twilight settling down. A few drops of rain, drilled horizontally, struck him. An impact was like that of leaded pet pellets. A splash of salt spray struck his face, and it was like the slap of a man's hand. His cheeks stung, and involuntarily tears of pain were in his smarting eyes. Several hundred natives had taken to the trees, and as he could have laughed at the bunch of human fruit clustered in the tops, then being Tahishi-born, he doubted his body at the waist, clasped the trunk of the trees with his hand, pressed the soles of his feet against the rear surface of the trunk, and began to walk up the tree. At the top he found two women, two children, and a man. One little girl clasped the house cat in her arms. From the eerie he waved his hands to Captain Lynch, and that doubtly patriarch waved back. Raoul applied at the applauded at the sky, and it approached much nearer. In fact, it seemed just overhead, and it turned from lead to, bl lead to black. Many people were still on the ground, grouped about the bases of the trees, holding on. Several such clusters were praying, and one of the Moran missionaries was exhorting a weird sound, rhythmical, faint as the faintest chirp of the far cricket, enduring but for a moment, and the moment suggesting to him the vague, the thought of heavens and celestial music came to his ears. He glanced about him and saw at the base of another tree a large cluster of people holding on by ropes by one another. He could see their faces working their lips, moving in unison. No sound came to him, but he knew that they were singing hymns. Still the wind continued to blow harder. By no conscious process could he measure it, for it was long since past beyond all his experience of wind, but he knew somehow, nevertheless, that it was blowing harder. Not far off a tree was uprooted, flinging with its load of human beings to the ground. A sea washed across the strip of land, and they were gone. Things were happening quickly. He saw a brown shoulder and a black head silhouetted against the churning white of the lagoon. The next instant, that too had vanished. The other trees were going, falling and crisscrossing like matches. 
He was amazed at the power of the wind. His own tree was swaying perilously. One woman was wailing and clutching her little girl, who in turn still hung to the, onto the cat. The man holding the other child touched Rahu's arm and pointed. He looked and saw the Mormon church careeringly, drunkenly, a hundred feet away. It had been torn from its foundation, and the wind and the sea were heaving and shoving it toward the lagoon. A frightful wall of water caught it and tilted it and flung it against half a dozen coconut trees, and the bunches of human fruit fell like ripe coconuts, subsiding waves showed them on the ground, and some lying motionless, others squirming and writhing. They remained him strangely reminded him strangely of ants. He had not shot he was not shocked. He had even risen above horror, quite as a matter of course. He noted the succeeding wave sweep the sand clean of human wreckage. A third wave, more colossal than any he had yet seen, hurled the church into the lagoon, where it floated off onto the obscurity of the leeward, half-submerged, reminding him of all the world of Noah's Ark. He looked at Captain Lynch's house and was surprised to find it gone. Things certainly were happening quickly. He noticed that many of the people in the trees that still held, that still had descended to the ground, the wind had yet again increased. His own trees showed that, no longer swaying and bent over and back, instead remaining practically stationary, curved with a rigid angle from the wind merely vibrating. But the vibration was sickening. It was like that of a tuning fork or the tongue of a Jew harp, and was in the rapidity of the vibrations that made it so bad, even though its roots held, it could not stand the strain for long. Something would have to break. Ah, there was one that had gone. He had not seen it go, but there it stood, the remnant, broken off halfway up the trunk. One did not know what happened unless he saw it. The mere crashing of the tree and the wail of human despair occurred, no place in that mighty volume of sound. He chanced to be looking in Captain Lynch's direction when it happened. He saw the chunk of tree halfway up splinter and part without noise. The head of the tree with three sailors of the Aurora and the captain sailed off wherever the lagoon did not fall to the ground, but drove through the air like a piece of shaft. For the hundred yards he followed its flight when it struck the water, he strained his eyes and was sure that he saw Captain Lynch wave farewell. Raoul did not wait for anything more. He touched the native and made signs to descend to the ground. The man was willing, but his women were paralyzed from terror, and he elected to remain with them. Raoul passed his rope around the tree and slid down, and a rush of salt water went over his head. He held his breath and clung desperately to the rope. The water subsided in the shelter of the trunk, and he breathed once more. He fastened the rope more securely, and then was put under by another sea. One of the women slid down and joined him, and the native remaining by the other women, the two children, and the cat. The supercargo had noticed how the groups clinging to the base of the other trees continually diminished. Now he saw the process work alongside him. It required all his strength to hold on, and the woman who had joined him was growing weaker. Each time he emerged from the sea, he was surprised to find himself still there, and next surprised to find the women still there. At last he emerged to find himself alone. He looked up. The top of the tree had gone as well, and half of the original height. The splintered end vibrated. He was safe. The roots still held. While the tree had been shorn of its windage, he began to climb up. He was so weak that he went slowly, and the sea after sea caught him before he was above them. Then he tied himself to the trunk and stiffened his soul to face the night, and he knew what not, knew not what. He felt very lonely in the darkness. At times it seemed to him that it was the end of the world and that he was the last one alive. Still the wind increased. Hour after hour it increased. By what time he calculated was eleven o'clock, the wind had become unbelievable.
It was horrible and monstrous, the thing of screaming fury, a wall of smoke that passed on, but it continued to smite and pass on, a wall without end. It seemed to him that he had become a light in the ethereal, and ethereal, that in was he in the motion, that he was being driven with inconceivable velocity through the unending solace. The wind was no longer air in motion. It had become substantial as water and quicksilver. He had a feeling that he could reach into it and tear out in chunks as one might do with the meat in the carcass of a steer, that he could seize hold of the wind and hang on and do it as a man might hang on to the face of a cliff. The wind strangled him. He could not face it and breathe, for it rushed in through his mouth and nostrils, descending his lungs like bladders. With such movement it seemed to him that his body was being packed and swollen with solid earth. Only by pressing his lips to the trunk of the tree could he breathe. Also the ceaseless of impact of wind exhausted him. Body and brain became weary, and he no longer observed, no longer thought, but was semi-conscious. One idea constituted his consciousness. So this was a hurricane. That one idea persisted irregularly. It was like the feeble fame that flickered occasionally. From a state of stupor, he would return to it. So this was a hurricane. When he would go off into another stupor, the height of the hurricane endured from eleven at night till three in the morning, and it was eleven that the tree in which he clung Manipai and his women snapped off. Manipai rose to the surface of the lagoon, still clutching his daughter Nagria. Only a South Sea Islander could have lived in such a diving smother. The pandemonious tree to which he attached himself turned over and over and froth and churn, and it was only by holding on at times and waiting, and at another time shifting his grip rapidly, that he was able to get his her head and Nagira to the surface of intervals sufficiently near together to keep the breath in them. But the air was mostly water, and with what flying spray she did rain and poured along the right angles to the perpendicular. It was ten miles across the lagoon to the farther ring of sand, here tossing the tree trunks, timbers, wrecks of cutters, and wreckage of house killed nine out of ten of the measurable beings who survived the passage of the lagoon. Half-drowned, exhausted, they were hurled into the mad mortar of the elements, and battered into formless flesh. But Manapai was fortunate. His chance was the one in ten. It fell to him by the freakage of fate. He agreed upon the sand, bleeding from a score of wounds. Nergria's left arm was broken. The fingers of her right were crushed, and cheek and forehead were laid upon open to the bone. He clutched the tree that yet stood, and clung on, holding the girl and sobbing for air, while the waters of the lagoon washed by knee-high at times, waist high. At three in the morning, the backbone of the hurricane broke, and by five no more than a stiff breeze was blowing, and by six it was dead calm, and the sun was shining. The sea had gone down on the yet restless edge of the lagoon, Manipod saw the broken bodies of those that had failed in the landing. Undoubtedly, Terafa and Nurai were among them. He went along the beach, examining them, and came upon his wife, lying half in and half out of the water. He sat down and wept, m making harsh animal noises as the, the manner of primit primitive grief. Then she stirred uneasy and groaned. He looked more closely. Not only was she alive, but she was uninjured. She was merely sleeping. Hers also had been one of chance in ten. Of the twelve hundred alive, and the night before, three hundred remained. And the Mormon missionary and the Genondrine made the census. The lagoon was cluttered with corpses. Not a house nor a hut was standing. In the whole atoll, not two stones remained one upon another. One in fifty of the coconut palms still stood, and they were wrecks, while one not on, not, well, not one of them remained a single nut. 
There was no fresh water. The shallow wells that caught the surface surface seepage of the rain were filled with salt. Out of the lagoon, a few soaked bags of flour were recovered. The survivors cut the hearts out of the fallen coconut tree and ate them. Here and there, they crawled into tiny hutches made by hollowing out the sand and covering over with fragments of metal roofing. The missionary made a crude still, but he could not distill water for three hundred people. By the end of the second day, Orville, taking a bath in the lagoon, discovered that his thirst was somewhat relieved. He cried out the news, and thereupon three hundred men and women and children could have been seen standing up their necks in the lagoon, trying to drink water and through their skin. The dead floated about them and were stripped, stepped upon where they lay at the bottom. One third, on the third day, the people buried their dead and sat down to wait for the rescue steamers. In the meantime, Nauru sat, torn from her family by the hurricane, had been swept away on an adventure of her own, clinging to a rough plank that wounded and bruised her, and that filled her body with splinters. She was thrown clear over the atoll and carried away to sea. Here, under the amazing buffets of a mountain of water, she lost her plank, and she was an old woman, nearly sixty, but she was she was Parindian-born, and she was never out of sight of the sea in her life. Swimming in darkness, staggering, suffocating, fighting for air, she was struck a heavy blow on the shoulder by a coconut. On the instant her palms had formed, and she seized the nut, and in the next hour she captured several more. Tied together, they formed a life buoy that preserved her life, and while at the same time it threatened to pound her to a jelly. She was a fat woman and easily and bruised easily, but she had the experience of hurricanes, and while she prayed to her shark god for protection from sharks, she waited for the wind to break. But at three o'clock she was in such a stupor that she did not know. Nor did she know at six o'clock when the dead calm settled down. She was shocked into consciousness when she had thrown upon had when she was thrown upon the sand. She dug in with raw and bleeding hands and feet and crawled against the backwash until she was beyond the reach of the waves. She knew where she was. This land could be no other than that tiny is it inlet of Takoda. It had no lagoon, no one lived upon it. Haruku was fifteen miles fifteen miles away. She could not see Haruku, but she knew it lay to the south. The days went by, and she lived on the coconuts that had kept her afloat. They supplied her with drinking water and with food, but she did not drink all she wanted, nor eat all she wanted. Rescue was problematic. She saw the smoke of the rescue steamers on the horizon, but what steamer would be expected to come so lonely? Would be expected to come to so lonely, uninhabited Dakota. From the first, she saw the tormented by corpses. The sea persisted in flinging them upon her bit of sand, and she persisted until her strength failed, and thrusting them back into the sea where the sharks tore at them and devoured them. When her strength failed, the bodies festered her beach with a ghastly horror, and she withdrew from them as far as she could, which was not far. By the tenth day, her last coconut was gone, and she was shriveling from thirst. She dragged herself along the sand, looking for coconuts. It was strange to say that so many bodies floated upon and no nuts, Surely there were more coconuts afloat than dead men. She gave up at last and lay exhausted till the end had come. Nothing remained but to wait for death. Coming out of a stupor, she became slowly aware that she was gazing that she was gazing at such a patch of sandy red hair on the head of a corpse. The sea flung the body toward her and then drew it back. It turned over, and she saw that it had no face, yet there was something familiar about that patch of sandy red hair. An hour passed, and she did not exert herself to make identification. 
She was waiting to die, and it seemed, and it mattered little to her what man that thing of horror since once might have been. But at the end of the hour, she sat up slowly and stared at the corpse. An unusual large wave had thrown it beyond the reach of the lesser waves. Yes, she was bright. She was right. That patch of red hair could belong to but one man in the Pimodius. It was Levy, the German Jew, that man who had bought the pearl and carried it away at Harina. Well, one thing was evident. The Harina had been lost. The pearl's buyer, god of fishermen and thieves, had gone back to him. She crawled down to the dead man, and his shirt had been torn away, and she could see the leather money belt about his waist. She held her breath and tugged at the buckles, and they gave her easier than she expected, and she crawled hurriedly across the sand, dragging her belt after her. The pocket after pocket she unbuckled, and in the belt she found empty. Where could he have put it? In the last pocket of all she found, the first and only pearl she had bought on the voyage. She crawled and she crawled a few feet farther to escape the pencilence of the belt and examine the pearl. It was the one Manipai had found and had been robbed by Toriki. She weighed it in her hand and rolled it back and forth carelessly, but in it she saw no intrinsic beauty. What she did see was the house of Mupai and Tarifa, and she had built it so carefully in her mind. Each time she looked at the pearl, she saw the house and all its details, including the octagon drop clock on the wall. That was something to live for. She tore the strip from her ahu and tied the pearl securely about her neck. Then she went on the beach, panting and groaning, but resolutely sinking, seeking for coconuts. Quickly she found one, and she glanced around a second. She broke one, drinking its water, which was mildewy, and eating the last particle of the meat. A little later she found a shattered drug out, and outrigger it was outtriggered was gone, but she was hopeful. Before the day was out, she found an outrigger. Every find was an Audrey. Augury. The pearl was a talisman. Late in the afternoon, she saw a wooden box floating low in the water, and she dragged out the beach. She dragged out on the beach its contents. Rattled and inside, she found ten tins of salmon. She opened one by hammering on it the canoe. Then a leak was started, and she drained the tin. After that, she spent several hours in extracting the salmon, hammering and squeezing it out one morsel at a time. Eight days longer, she waited for rescue. In the meantime, she fastened the outrigger back on the canoe and using a lash of all the coconut fiber she could find and also what remained of her hau. The canoe was badly cracked and she could not make it watertight, but cowbish made from coconut she stored on board for the but for the bailer. She was hard put for a paddle with a piece of tin. She sawed off all her hair and close to the scalp. Out of the hair she braided a cord, and by means of cord she lashed a three-foot piece of broom handle and brought from the salmon case. She gnawed wedges with her teeth and with them wedged the lashing. On the eighteenth day at midnight she launched the canoe through the surf and started back to Haruku. She was an old woman. Hardship had stripped her fat uh, hardship had stripped her fat from her till scarcely more than bone and skin and a few stringy muscles remained. The canoe was large and should have been paddled by three strong men. She did it alone with a makeshift paddle. Also, the canoe leaked badly and one-third of her time was devoted to bailing. By clear daylight, she looked vainly for Haruku. Astern, Dakota had sunk beneath the sea trim. The sun blazed down on her nakedness, compelling her body to surrender its moisture. Two tins of salmon were left, and in the course of the day she pattered holes in them and drained the liquid. 
She had no time to waste in extracting the meat. A current was setting to the westward, and she made westing whether she made southing or not. In the early afternoon, standing upright in the canoe, she sighted Haruku, and the wealth of coconut palms was gone. Only there and there, at wide intervals, could she see the raging remnant of trees. The sight cheered her. She was nearer than she had thought. The current was setting in to the westward. She bore up against it and paddled on. The witches in the battle lashing worked loose, and she lost much time at frequent intervals in driving them tight. Then there was the bailing. One hour in three, she had to cease paddling in order to bail, and all the time she drifted to the westward. By sunset, Haruku bore southeast from her three miles away. There was a full moon, and by eight o'clock, the land was due east and two miles away. She struggled on for another hour, but the land was as far away as ever. She was in the main grip of the current. The canoe was too large, and the paddle was too inadequate. Too much of her time and strength was wasted in bailing. Besides, she was very weak and growing weaker. Despite her efforts, the canoe was drifting off westward. She breathed a prayer and to the shark god, slipped over the side, and began to swim. She was actually refreshed by the water and quickly left the canoes astern. At the end of the hour, the land was precipitately near. They came, then came her fright. Right before her eyes, not twenty feet off, was a large plane cut the water. She swam steadily toward it, and slowly it glided away, curving off toward the right and circling around her. She kept her eyes on the fin and swam on. When the fin disappeared, she lay face downward in the water and watched. When the fin reappeared, she resumed her swimming. The monster was lazy. She could see that. Without a doubt, he had been well fed since the hurricane. He had not been very hungry. She knew he would not have hesitated from making a dash for her. He was about fifteen feet long, and one bite, she knew, would cut her in half. But she did not have any time to waste on him. Whether she swam or not, the current drew away from the land just the same. A half hour went by, and the shark began to grow bolder. Seeing no harm in her, he drew closer and narrowing circles, cocking his eye at her impudently as she slid past. Sooner or later, she knew well enough he would get up sufficient courage to dash at her. She resolved to play first. It was a desperate act. She meditated. She was an old woman, alone in the sea and weak from starvation and hardship, and yet she, in the face of this sea tiger, must anticipate his dash by herself dashing at him. She swam on, waiting her chance, and at last he passed languidly by, barely eight feet away. She rushed at him suddenly, feigning that she was attacking him, and gave a wild flirt of his tail. He fled away, and his sandpiper hide, striking her, took off her skin from elbow and shoulder. He swam rapidly in a widening circle, and at last disappeared. In a hole in the sand, covered over by fragments of metal roofing, Manipai and, Ter Manipai and Terafei lay disputing. If you had done as I said, charged Tarifa for the thousandth time, and hidden the pearl and told no one, you would have it now. But Huru Huru was the one with me when I opened the shell. I have not told you so many times, and times without end. And how we shall have no house, Rahu told me today, that if you had not sold it, the pearl to Toraki, I did not sell it, Toraki robbed me, and that if you had not sold the pearl, he would give you 5,000 French dollars, which is 10,000 shilling. He has been talking to his mother, Manipai explained. She has an eye for a pearl. And now the pearl is gone, is lost, Tarina explained. It paid my debt to Toraki. That is 1,200 I have made away, made, Anyway, Torika is dead, she cried, then have heard no words of his schooner. She was lost along the Arroya and the Haraya. Haraya. Will 
Tori could pay you the 300 credits he had promised? No, because Tori guy is dead and you have found no pearl. Would you today owe Torakai the twelve hundred? No, because Torakai is dead, and you cannot pay a dead man. But Levi did not pay Torakai, Manapai said. He gave him a piece of paper that was good for the money, and palpate. And now Levi is dead, and cannot pay Torakai, is dead, and the paper lost with him, and the pearl is lost without Levi. Levi, and you are right, Terife. I have lost the pearl and have gotten nothing for it. Now let us sleep. He held up his hand suddenly and listened. From without from without came a noise as to one who breathed heavily and with pain. A hand fumbled against the mat that was serving for a door. Who is there? Manapai cried. Nari came the answer. Can you tell me where is my son Manapai? Tarif screamed and gripped her husband's arm, her husband's arm. A ghost, she chanted, a ghost. Manapai's face was ghastly yellow. He clung weakly to his wife. Good woman, he said in flattering tones, striving to disguise his voice. I know your son well. He is living on the east side of the lagoon. From without came the sound of a sigh. Manapai began to feel elated, but he had fooled the ghost. He had fooled the ghost. But where do you come from, old woman? he asked. From the sea, was the dejected answer. I knew it, I knew it, screamed Terrify. Terrify, rocking to and fro. Since when was, since when has Terrify bathed in a strange house? came Nora's voice through the matting. Manapai looked fear and reproached his wife. It was her voice that had betrayed them. And since it was Manapai, my son denied his old mother, the voice went on. No, no, I have not, Manapai has not denied you, he cried. I am not Manapai. He is the one on the east end of the lagoon. I tell you, Nag Nagura sat up in bed and began to cry. The Madian started to shake. What are you doing, Manapai demanded. I'm coming in, said the voice of Nari. One end of the matting lifted, and Terva tried to dive under the blankets, but Manapai held on to her and he had to hold on to something. Together, struggling with each other, with shivering bodies and chattering teeth, they gazed upon the prudent eyes of, at the lifting mat. They saw Noray dripping with seawater without her rue crept in. They rolled over backward from her and thought Nagura's blanket, which, to cover their heads, you might give your old mother a drink of water, the ghost said plaintively. Give her a drink of water, Tarafa commanded in a shaking voice, Give her a drink of water, Manipai. Commanded his shaking voice, Give her a drink of water, Manipai commanded to Nagura. And together they kicked out Nagura from under the blanket, and a minute later, peeping, Manipai saw the ghost drinking, with which it reached out a shaking hand and laid it on his. He felt the weight of it and was convinced that it was no ghost. Then he emer emerged, dragging Terrafa with him, and in a few minutes were all listening to Nuri's tale, and when she told of Levi and dropped the pearl in Tarifa's hand, and even she was reconciled to the reality of her mother-in-law. In the morning, said Tarifa, you will sell the pearl to Raoul for five thousand French. The house objected Nuri. He will build the house, Tarifa answered. He was always... He weighs it, will cost 4,000 French. Also, he will give 1,000 French, credit, French in credits, which is 2,000 Chile. And it will be six fathoms long, Nori queried. I answered Manapai, six fathoms. And in the middle room, an octagon, drop a clock, I, and a round table as well. Then give me something to eat, for I am hungry, said Nori complacently. And after, we will sleep, for I am weary. And tomorrow we will have more to talk about the house before we sell the pearl. It will be better if we take the thousand French in cash. Money is even better than credit in buying goods from traders. Well, that was that short story. This is the Foundations Life Today podcast. I've changed the schedule 
this will now be coming out on Wednesday mornings. I want to thank everyone for coming by. There are ways you can support this show. There are links in the description of this podcast. And see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for viewing this Life to Tape video. Life to Tape is part of Fotations, and if you'd like to help, you can visit FotationsDonation.com, where there are ways you can support financially or by donating equipment. If you'd also like to support on social media, that helps out a lot. There's more information on our social media accounts in the links below. Thank you. Bye-bye.